Hi, this is Summer from Seattle, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed of starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up. And the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. Dreamers, this whole entire story that I'm about to tell you began over something so minuscule, something so seemingly petty that exploded into a full-blown war. And when I get to the end of it, I'm certain all of you are going to be shaking your heads as much as I did when this first hit the news some years back. On Wednesday, February 17, 2010, it was kind of a busy day at Plaza Vista Elementary School in Irvine, California. An after-school tennis class was wrapping up behind the main building of the school and the PTA volunteer director of the after-school classroom enrichment program, or ACE for short, was a parent named Kelly Peters. It was her job to gather up the kids, line them up, and see them off to their parents at the front of the school. All of you out there with kids, those who join the PTA, know what this sort of stuff is all about, right? We volunteer on field trips or special activities at the school, whatever it happens to be. And that's just what this is, a PTA volunteer thing for Kelly. As a matter of fact, she was also PTA president. The six-year-old son of Jill and Kent Easter had accidentally been left outside when the kids were coming in from the tennis lessons. He was waiting by the back door, which had been locked so he couldn't be let in. The tennis instructor happened to be the one who noticed the boy and took him around the building to the front desk of the school. His mother, a woman named Jill Easter, noticed that her son had not been brought up to the front of the school with the rest of the tennis students. She seemed to think that her son was upset, which is understandable he was accidentally left behind. And this caused Jill to become upset and insisted that she needed to know what happened to her son. Kelly tried to explain to Jill that her son was a little bit slow to line up, that it wasn't unusual for him to kind of take his time to follow along with the group, and she had not noticed that he wasn't in line when they came up to the front of the school. Kelly profusely apologized to Jill, as well as to her son, and according to her account of the incident, she gave the boy a hug, apologized again and again, and she assumed that all was forgiven for the mishap. No harm, no foul, right? Now as a parent, I get being upset that your child was accidentally left outside in the tennis courts. 
I could see myself totally not liking that either. And I know I'm not perfect. And I probably know my child might be that one kid that doesn't listen or pay attention. It's just a whole bunch of factors, but yes, ultimately, the PTA volunteer is responsible. However, it all turned out all right. And everyone is safe. Nothing happened. Maybe Kelly needed to be reassigned to some other volunteer activities. Perhaps supervising groups of children is a bit too much. I don't know. But I think I would have been able to walk away and accept the apology. Perhaps I'd be a little bit miffed, but for the most part, I'd be alright. And I would also have to have a talk with my kid about following directions and listening to his teachers and the adults in charge, right? Well, for Jill Easter, not so fast. She is not okay with this. Not by a long shot. And she was not going to let this incident with Kelly Peters go. And I'm going to tell you all about it in today's 57th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the PTA Mom. Jill looked on stoically as Kelly tried to right things with her and her son. She glared at the tennis coach, demanding if he touched her son. She insisted that this was not normal for the tennis instructor to escort her son up to the front of the school like this. Kelly insisted that it was not that unusual that sometimes the instructors bring the kids to the front. Kelly quickly became uneasy over this conversation that she was having with Jill, and she really didn't want to continue talking to her any longer. And as Kelly walked away, Jill said, I wonder how you sleep at night, the way you treat people. Kelly went back into the front office of the school and broke down into tears over this encounter with Jill Easter. The following day, Jill launched a complaint with the school that her boy had been in hysterics over being locked out of the school for 19 minutes and that she demanded that Kelly Peters be banned from volunteering with the PTA any longer. In her complaint to school officials, she said, quote, Kelly Peters told me that she blames my son because he is slow and that he often gets left behind because it's hard to wait for him. For the record, my son is very intelligent, mature, and athletic, and he has successfully participated in many ACE classes. He is receiving good grades, and he has earned many awards this year. He is not mentally or physically slow by any standard. The ACE director interviewed the coach and both of the boys' parents and concluded that nothing happened to their son and it was perhaps closer to five minutes that he was left outside, not 19 minutes. But for Jill, it was more than just that. All of this seemingly came down to that one word, something Jill took as an insult to her son. Slow. Remember, Kelly said that her son was slow to line up. Jill took that as meaning her child was intellectually slow, not being a slowpoke to get in line, which was Kelly's intention. Fast forward almost exactly one year, on February 16, 2011, Kelly Peters was confronted by the Irvine police at the school. They asked her for the keys to her car. Of course, this must have been kind of confusing and alarming, but she told herself she didn't have anything to worry about. She knows that she's done nothing wrong. So she gave the officer the keys. 
What they were looking for, she had no idea. But here, have at it. Her car, a PT cruiser, was parked outside the elementary school. I can only imagine the embarrassment that Kelly is going through in this moment. Her daughter had been going to Plaza Vista for six years, and she was about to be dismissed from school along with all of the other students. All of the parents knew Kelly. She was a super familiar face in the after-school program and the PTA. And here she was in the parking lot, having her car searched by the Irvine Police Department. And what would happen next would absolutely devastate Kelly. And it must have been like watching this sort of thing happen on TV, like this can't possibly be real. The officer going into her car retrieved from her vehicle a Ziploc bag containing about 17 grams of marijuana, a ceramic pipe, and two smaller pill baggies, one containing 11 Percocets and the other 29 Vicodin. Kelly broke down into tears. She cried. She insisted that those drugs were not hers. And of course, the officer, 22 years on the force, has seen it all, right? And no matter who, what, where, when, how, or why, no matter where he found the drugs, those who get caught with them always lied. It's not their drugs. They swear it belongs to somebody else. And Kelly did the same. She swore these drugs were not hers. This Wednesday had been completely, totally normal for Kelly. It was a pretty routine day for the 49-year-old. She was blonde and perky, a popular and frequent presence at the Plaza Vista School. Always bright, always in flip-flops, bright dresses. She was the quintessential OC mom. She had quit her job working in mortgage loans to dedicate her time being a full-time PTA mom. And all of the kids and parents adored her. Always having been a spontaneous person, when she finally settled down and got married and tried to have children, it took years. And when she finally got pregnant, that became her life's priority. She looked for a safe and comfortable place to raise her daughter, and that's what took her and her husband to Irvine, California. You don't hear about a lot of crime there, because it is one of Southern California's safest communities. It is a city that is strictly regulated with all kinds of ordinances and rules. Irvine is 66 square miles. There are 54 parks, 62,000 trees, five man-made lakes, and a population of approximately 219,000 people. Everybody's house looks the same. Everybody's grass is cut the same height. And the schools in Irvine have a 97% college acceptance rate. Pretty much every single corner, you'll find a tutoring center. And Plaza Vista was the premier school in the district. And Kelly was a mom that everybody knew. She had an amazing ability to connect with children. She was always the one that would stay if you were running late to pick up your child from the after-school program. She even had her own desk in the office. She was polite, kind, endearing, easygoing. You probably couldn't ask for more from a volunteer PTA president. 
a caregiver of your children. And parents, we know how important that is to know the adults that interact with our children while they are at school genuinely love what they do. And all of that was Kelly Peters and more. So that day, Wednesday, February 16th, the after-school activity was karate class. The instructor had messaged Kelly that he was stuck in traffic and asked if she could stay with the class until he got there. So, true to form, Kelly did what she could to transform into the karate master. She started getting them warmed up with stretches, and that's when someone from the office came in looking for her. There was an officer at the front asking to speak to Kelly Peters. She immediately thought something was wrong with her husband because of the nature of his work. He does a lot of driving. She hurried to the front and encountered Officer Charles Shaver. He told her that this wasn't about her husband and to try and calm down. Officer Shaver was seven hours into his shift with just about nothing notable going on anywhere in Irvine. On an average day, he might have a shoplifter or a barking dog, but that's about the extent of it. He was a member of the Irvine SWAT team. He was a sniper who for 22 years in Irvine has never had to pull his trigger. And today, he got the call at 1.15 p.m. about a reckless driver in the parking lot. The caller said, quote, I was calling because my daughter is a student at Plaza Vista Elementary, and I am concerned that one of the parent volunteers may be under the influence or using drugs. I just had to go over to the school, and I saw a car driving very erratically. The caller also stated that he had seen drugs in the car, and he knew who the driver was. Her name was Kelly, and she drives a PT Cruiser. And he also provided the license plate, and also what was imprinted on the license plate frame, the words, only the groovy. Kelly walked out to the parking lot with Officer Shaver. He already had her car blocked in the spot in which it was parked. And mind you, there are parents and children milling in and out of the school. Dismissal is about to happen. The officer explained that he received a call from someone witnessing her driving recklessly at 1.15 p.m. She explained that that could not have been possible. She had already been parked in the school and inside prior to that time. The officer asked her if she had anything in her car that she shouldn't have, and she said no. He requested to search her car, and she agreed immediately with no hesitation. And there they were practically in plain sight. The drugs were tucked in the pocket behind the driver's seat. The officer dropped the baggies onto the hood of her PT Cruiser, but she asked him if he could please put them out of sight so nobody could see this. She insisted that the drugs were not hers, and she said that she does leave her car unlocked at times, but those must have been planted. He put the items he found in the trunk of his police cruiser and they went back into the school to speak in private in the conference room. He conducted a sobriety check. He looked in Kelly's eyes. He took her pulse. He made her do the things that you see officers make people do when they're stopped for being suspected of driving under the influence, and she passed all of Officer Shaver's tests. 
Eventually, her daughter and her husband arrived, and she really wasn't sure what to say to them about all this. And fortunately for Kelly, Officer Shaver was giving her the benefit of the doubt. The things that they had already found, he could have placed her in custody. Having marijuana on a school campus is a misdemeanor, not to mention having those pills like Vicodin and Percocet without a prescription is even more serious, a felony. And that can mean some time behind bars. Remember, he was at the end of his shift. He could have just taken her into custody and gone home for the day, but he chose not to. He kept digging. This was his job, and this was an unusual circumstance. Something just doesn't seem right. He talked to some of the school staff, and everyone corroborated her story. She was already in the school office by 12.40 p.m., so the concerned citizen who called to report having seen Kelly's car driving erratically called at 1.15 p.m. And it was those 35 minutes that had Officer Shaver scratching his head. So he obtained the phone number of the caller and tried to call him back, but the number was fictitious. So his next order of business was to see if he could search Kelly's home. And she consented, but it still worried her that there might be something planted there too. So Kelly drove to her home, which was about a block away, and Officer Shaver, along with another officer, followed behind. And when they got there, Kelly stood by as the officers searched her home. Drawers, cabinets, outside on the deck. He was looking for anything in the home that could tie her to the drugs or those little dose pill pouches. There was going to be trouble if she had any packages of those anywhere or any other prescription medications like the ones they found in her car. But there was nothing to be found at Kelly's home. And little by little, Officer Shaver began to feel like there was more to this than meets the eye. In all of his years on the force, a drug bust had never come this easy. An emergency call with all of these specific details right down to the writing on her license plate frame and where the drugs were to be found, sticking out of the back pouch of the seat practically in plain view. People usually find better hiding places in the car than that. And there was another odd thing that he noted, which kind of stood out to him right away. People who smoke usually don't store their pipes in the same bag as the marijuana. Officer Shaver told Kelly that he is not going to arrest her. He said that he would have the forensics people come over and take some DNA samples from her and her daughter. They would take her fingerprints and they would also take fingerprints from her car. He warned her that if her DNA came up as a match on the drugs or the pipe or the baggies, there is the possibility that she could still face possession charges. The following day, Officer Shaver met with the chief and some other detectives and told them about the situation with Kelly Peters. Right away, to all of them, this seemed more than what it appeared to be. And ultimately, when he asked Kelly, if the drugs are not yours, how did they get into the pouch of her car seat? Her response was, I have an enemy. 
Kent and Jill Easter were some 30-somethings. Both of them were attorneys. She graduated from Berkeley Law School, and he from Stanford and UCLA, and they were both in corporate law and had met at work. Together, the couple had three children. Jill had quit practicing law to be a stay-at-home mom and an Irvine socialite, while Kent became a partner at one of the biggest law firms in Orange County. So when Kelly told Officer Shaver about the Easters, he was listening very intently. She had a hard time holding it together about the year-long campaign that the Easters had launched to have her thrown out of the school as PTA president and head of the after-school program, resulting from their son being left behind that one day. Their campaign did not work, as she was still very much involved with the PTA with the support of the parents and the administrators behind her. She had thought that all of this had passed. This phone call reporting her to be suspiciously driving and then finding the stash of drugs, the first people that crossed her mind were the Easters. They never got over that word. Slow. She had tried to explain to Jill that that wasn't what she meant. She didn't mean that he was mentally or intellectually slow, that sometimes he was kind of a daydreamer. Kelly adored the boy, and he was an active participant in her after-school program. She described him as bright, quiet, an amazing artist, and they were quite actually really well-bonded. She mused that perhaps this might be a part of Jill's ire towards her. She had no idea. The principal had tried to speak to Jill about a week after the initial incident with her son, and she said she just didn't want any more children to be hurt. And she reminded the principal that she and her husband were both attorneys. Jill was confronting parents on campus directly to campaign for Kelly's firing from a job that she's not even getting paid to do, mind you. The principal told her that she was teetering on harassment and this was something that was not going to be allowed on school grounds. But Jill fired back that she had the right to do what she was doing and she was going to continue to do so until Kelly was gone. Jill also told the principal that she was going to put out signs on her car that would read what Kelly had done. And as for Kelly's part in all this, this whole thing had her shook. Her reputation the reputation of the school. She did not want to cause any harm or damage, so she offered to leave the school, but the principal insisted that she stay. When that didn't work, Jill went to the Irvine Police Department to try and file a complaint about Kelly and what she did, and they made a cursory once-over and decided that no crime had been committed. So next, Jill put in a request for a restraining order that claimed Kelly was harassing and stalking her and her son, but the court tossed that out quickly as well. Not to be deterred, enter Kent Easter into the game. He filed a civil lawsuit against Kelly. In his lawsuit, he claimed that his son was a victim of false imprisonment and the intentional infliction of emotional distress, and as a result, he was suffering extreme and severe mental anguish and that the acts of Kelly Peters were willful, malicious, and oppressive and that they were seeking exemplary and punitive damages, but they would end up dropping that lawsuit as well. The school made some policy changes for the after-school program. They also gave Jill and Kent a refund on their tuition that they had paid. 
but the school still stood behind Kelly and would even go on to have her elected PTA president. So the Easters had just lost again and again and again. And Kelly Peters' fear was palpable. The detectives could tell that she was sincerely afraid. This bizarre call alerting police directly to her car and the police quickly and easily finding the stash of drugs. And Kelly remembered one of the last things that Jill had said to her that day that all of this has started, I will get you. And it just so happened to have happened almost a year to the day from the original confrontation between the two women. Even though Jill is the first person that popped into her mind, she really had no proof that it was her. So she did tell the detectives that there was a dad that lived across the street from the school that was kind of known for weird behaviors, so that might be another person to look into. But police already knew the guy, as they've received concerning calls about him in the past, trespassing onto the elementary school property, shouting at the staff, bothering the crossing guards. He's even been seen filming students as they cross the street. He even came to pick up his own son from school one day in a full Batman costume. He was a parent that other parents were leery of, but Kelly kind of felt sorry for the guy. But there was a time when he wanted to be the PTA president. Maybe this was some kind of ploy to have her removed so he could try for the job. So of the two potential suspects Kelly'd offered up, it seemed more likely it would be the strange neighbor as opposed to the affluent husband and wife attorneys. Detectives just weren't ready to rule out Kelly for the possession charges just because she came across as genuine to them. They did check on her background and found nothing. They asked around the school, adored by everyone. So police decided that they needed to keep digging. They got a hold of the 911 call and played it back. The caller gave his name as being Vijay Chandrasekhar. And I'm not even going to try to pretend like I know how to pronounce that properly, but it is spelled C-H-A-N-D-R-A-S-E-K-H-A-R. The caller said that he had a daughter at the elementary school, but there was nobody in the school with that last name. The officer also noticed, and I noticed this too when I read the transcripts of the 911 call, he knew lots of good details. Too many, as a matter of fact which included Kelly's name, her car, her license plate, and the words on her license plate frame. The caller also sounded kind of nervous on the phone. He stammered over his words, and it just kind of sort of sounded rehearsed. And when the lead detective on the case re-listened to the 911 call several times, he began to notice that the caller made an attempt to feign a foreign accent, but didn't really try to do so until midway through the call. Little by little, the more and more the facts were examined, the more and more it was beginning to look like Kelly Peters was being framed for drug possession. Next, detectives traced the origin of the call. They came to find that it was made from the lobby area of the Island Hotel, which is a fancy resort in Newport Beach. So they went to the security to view the surveillance footage from around the time just before the call was made that day at 
They were looking for that strange neighbor to see if he came through the hotel's main entrance. Instead, they found someone else come through the lobby, headed towards the phones. When detectives showed school administrators images of the man that they were certain made the call, they all recognized him right away. That was Kent Easter. And it just so happens that his law office is right across the street from the Island Hotel, only a few hundred feet away, as a matter of fact. And he was caught on surveillance there as well. Detectives also learned that the Easters lived only about a mile away from Kelly. And when he looked at their phone records between 2.37 a.m. and 4.21 a.m. on the morning of February 16, 2011, the same day that the 911 call was made and the drugs were discovered in Kelly's car, the couple had sent 15 text messages back and forth implying that something was going on in the wee hours of the morning where they were not home together. And cell tower pings also indicated that the phones belonged to Joe was pinging near their home and his phone was pinging near Kelly's home. Kelly parks in an outdoor parking lot at her complex. The lot was gated but it would only be a matter of waiting for another car to click the gate open and then to follow that vehicle in. All the while, all Kelly could do was wait and worry. These drugs were not hers, she insisted, but the police could arrest her at any moment. She began seeing a therapist and explained all that had gone on. And even the therapist was skeptical about her being able to get out of these drug possession charges. That's pretty damning. And that was hard to hear, coming from her own therapist, not believing her. She began to wonder what her friends might really be thinking. Do they believe her? Lucky for Kelly, the investigators were keeping an open mind. They seemed to sense that something just wasn't right with this whole scenario. For several weeks, detectives kept their eyes on Jill and Kent so they could get a feel for the couple's day-to-day routines. And once they figured out the logistics, they were going to move in on the couple. And on March 4th, 2011, about two dozen officers with the Irvine Police Department gathered up for a meeting to discuss and lay out their plans to serve search warrants at Kent's law office and at their home at the same time. Officers followed Kent to his office all the way into his parking structure to where he parked his car. Their strategy was that they were going to kind of play dumb, to not let on about all the things that they knew. When he got out of his car, the lead detective on the case, along with a couple of other officers out of uniform, approached Kent. They were trying to be ambiguous. Did he know anything untoward going on at the Plaza Vista School? Kent was amicable. He willingly spoke to the officers with ease. He told them about the problem they had last year with the son being locked out of the school and that the school volunteer put him down by referring to him as slow and that he and Jill filled numerous complaints out, but it's all water under the bridge, indicating that they just wanted to let it go. They asked him if he knew Kelly Peters. He denied ever meeting her, going so far as to say he didn't even know what she looked like. The questioning became more focused more pointed at the issue at hand. And Ken's demeanor began to shift from amicable to somewhat stiff and defensive. 
He asked the officers if they were recording the conversation, and they said that they were. They asked him if he had heard anything going on with Kelly in the last several weeks. Did he know of her to have been in any kind of trouble? Kent said no. Another detective chimed in and asked Kent if he had any clue why they were there talking to him. He said no. The officer told Kent that he's been following him for a couple weeks now, and he named some of the places that he had seen Kent come and go from. So he posed this question. You're an educated man. You have to be wondering why I'm following you around. That this is his job. He's a detective. He's in criminal investigations. And he follows people around to learn their routines. And you have to be wondering why I'm standing here talking to you. And Kent answered, yeah, I definitely am. The detective asked Kent to rewind to about two and a half weeks earlier. What would be a reason for him to be out of the house in the wee hours of the morning? He said that most likely he wouldn't be, but on occasion he'd have to run and grab diapers for the baby or something like that. And this is when he began to look nervous. And he kind of reverted to the same nervous stammering that was apparent on the 911 call. The detective was straightforward by now. He told Kent that he needed to think about this, keep his mouth shut, and just listen, because at some point he's going to have to make a choice about what he's going to say next. He told Kent that he himself might not be the brightest guy in the world. He doesn't have a fancy law degree like he does, but he knows how to follow a trail, and he knows how to connect the dots and he revealed to Kent that he knew that his phone pinged near Kelly's home sometime in the middle of the night, and that the things that they found in her car that same day, if they had any kind of DNA on them, any at all, they were going to find it. Everything was being processed as they spoke to him. So the detective laid it out. If something is going off in your mind right now, In light of what you've just been told, was there anything else that he would like to add to what he's already said? In Kent's response, I would like to get a lawyer. The detective whipped out his search warrant, and in the center console of Kent's Toyota Camry, lo and behold, some diet pills. Inside, a mini plastic easy-dose pill pouch just like the ones found in Kelly's vehicle. Meanwhile, at home, Jill was outside with her three-year-old while police milled through her home looking for evidence. Simultaneously, another team of officers were executing a search warrant in Kent's office, but because his office is full of confidential files of his clients, they brought in a special attorney who worked as a special master for the courts to determine what could be relevant and wouldn't be when it came to the potential evidence found in the office. And their presence in the law office building was causing quite a commotion amongst Kent's associates and firm employees. They were being confrontational, demanding to know what they were doing and what gives. Why are the Irvine Police Department here? This is Newport Beach. Finally, one of the officers threatened to start arresting people if they did not back off. 
so they backed off. The Easters were not taken into custody that day, but they did snatch up their cell phones. Those were pretty certain to hold plenty of incriminating things that might just seal their case against them. But the Easters, they are not ordinary people with ordinary contacts. They are lawyers with confidential client information on their phones. There was going to have to be some legal maneuvering to get into those phones. And in the meantime, while all of that got sorted out, the phones remained under lock and key inside the chambers of an Orange County judge. And dreamers, there was this twist on this whole story. On the morning that the warrants were going to be served, detectives were sitting in an unmarked vehicle in front of the Easter's house when this off-duty Los Angeles County firefighter came walking up the street. When he saw the detectives in their car, he kept walking and talking on his phone as he did. In the same moment, Jill was opening her front door and she was somewhat scantily clad when she saw officers she quickly went back in and shut the door. Police quickly stopped the man as he was about to drive away. Glenn Gomez was his name. And he was there to visit a beautiful Swedish girl named Jill. As it would turn out, Glenn and Jill had been carrying on an affair for two and a half years. And it was lurid and explicit. Detectives wanted to see if maybe he would help them. Without giving him too many details, they told him that he just found himself caught up in something very, very serious that could potentially destroy his career and his family. They warned Glenn that this woman could ruin you. All he could do was profess his love for her. They asked him if he would talk to Joe and wear a wire. He agreed mainly because he wanted to show that he didn't have anything to hide but it also seems he kind of wanted to know what was going on with this beautiful Swedish girl. On March 23, 2011, the two met at a park near her home. Two of her children were in tow with her, and she sent her kids off to play while she spoke to the park ranger as she introduced him to her kids. He told her that the cops had been pestering him with questions, and he wanted to know what this was all about. She did admit that she was in some hot water, but would not get into much more details than that. She told him she was in some kind of trouble and that Kent could lose his job, but she can't have an investigation like this going on. Glenn told her that he has to tell officers the truth about them, and he thought that that would be best if they cooled off for a while, that it might not be wise to be carrying on like this considering everything that was going on. He expressed his concerns that all of the feelings that he has for her might be for someone that he might not know. And having the police talk to him about her is making him question that. She began condemning him for wanting to bail out on her when she needed him to stand by her and help her. But all he really wanted to know was what is it that the police want? What are they poking around for? But she claimed to not know. She just kept saying that she needs help that she's losing everything, and that she needs help. He reassured her that if she's done nothing wrong, she'll be okay. She became more and more upset as the conversation went on, having the feeling that Glenn was dumping her in her time of need. 
And it would not be too long after that recorded conversation that the two broke off their affair. But she was not going to let it end quietly. She made an appearance at his home and told his wife the whole entire thing. And she brought proof, emails and pictures of their relationship. She also sent a letter to his wife's place of employment spelling out the details of the affair. But Jill wrote it as though a third person had written it, not herself. And finally, towards the end of March, the lead detective called Kelly and told her that he could not get too much into details, but they were pretty convinced that the drugs were indeed planted in her car, just as she had claimed all along. What he didn't tell her was this bombshell. Jill's DNA was detected on the ceramic pipe as well as on the Vicodin, but not on the Percocet. And Ken's DNA was found to be on all three items. The detective reminded Kelly to keep all of this tight-lipped about the details that he's sharing with her because anything could put their case into jeopardy and they can't have rumors floating around, especially getting back to Jill and Kent. It was going to take some time, but they really wanted to make sure that they crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. There were just some obstacles in the way that made this case more difficult than the average. The fact that the two suspects were both lawyers... So much of their stuff is confidential, and the fact that they are married. And they hired attorneys so prominent that these are lawyers who get hired when judges get into legal troubles. Remember, they knew Kent's phone pinged near Kelly's house in the early morning hours the drugs were eventually discovered on that same day. And they knew that he and Jill had sent some 15 text messages during that time but the defense had been putting up a battle to keep the cops out of their phones. Getting this information would have to be done by a specialist from the court, and they just had to wait while he made his way through upwards of 20,000 emails in Ken's phone, making sure to exclude the ones that would fall under client-attorney privilege. But there's another obstacle. He was not the one who had the qualifications to sort through any of the emails that might fall under the spousal privilege, and there was going to have to be another specialist of sorts to go through those. It took eight months, but it was finally done. And by November, detectives had a bunch of texts from each of the couple's phones. But unfortunately, those 15 text messages that early morning when Kent was out and about had been erased before the phones were taken. Frustrating for the detectives, no doubt. This case was taking much, much longer to piece together than first anticipated. And even as a year went by, Kent was still going strong at his law firm. Despite the police search, he was still climbing the ranks there. And as for Kelly, she tried her best to continue on, but dealt with fear and paranoia. She found herself searching her own car for drugs on a pretty regular basis. She still had a great deal of support from the school and everyone stood by her. On occasion, she would see Jill as she came to pick up her boy, and she just did what she could to avoid looking at the woman. Her daughter had trouble sleeping, seeming to withdraw socially, sometimes even seen talking to herself. She tried sending her daughter to the school therapist, but that made her daughter feel even more self-conscious. Kelly tried to ask other parents if they could ask their kids to play with their daughter, but this backfired too, making her daughter feel even worse. She eventually started begging her mom to pull her out of the school altogether. Kelly struggled with anxiety, 
wondering if someone was lurking around her home, and she'd end up breaking down into tears on a regular basis. She had nightmares of Jill coming into her home and trying to kill her. The city that she had moved to that she had believed to be one of the safest in America, as it turned out, had her worst enemies lurking around it. So the Orange County District Attorney's Office has a specialized unit that deals with specific types of crimes, higher profile crimes like the ones involving physicians, law enforcement, political figures, and attorneys. The prosecutor assigned to the Irvine attorneys who framed a PTA mom on some drug possession charges was Christopher Duff. He found it kind of interesting how much time and effort was put into a case where nobody was actually harmed physically. There had been nearly two dozen detectives on Jill and Kent at any given time, and they had put nearly a year into the investigation. There were just so many things that could have gone wrong for Kelly, and she very well could have been severely damaged for life if the officer who first questioned her at the school that day didn't have the hunch that something just wasn't quite right. Or if it had happened in a town or two over that wasn't as upscale and posh as Irvine. Or if Kelly herself wasn't a sympathetic, believable woman. And he understood how Kelly's life, reputation, and good name could have been wiped out by the actions of this couple. To be confronted by police at her daughter's school, a place where she was well-liked and trusted, and he could see the fragility in her. This entire experience has traumatized her to no end, and going to jail would have destroyed the woman. Tears streamed from her eyes every time she spoke of the plan the Easters hatched to ruin her, and her sense of security has all but been demolished. And to Duff, this case was dragging on much longer than he felt like it needed to. They were still in a contentious battle to get into the couple's cell phones and past all the attorney-client privilege stuff. He came to realize that these two attorneys, they're elitists, and they feel like they're superior to everyone else, especially to Kelly, whom they felt slighted them by calling their boy slow. How dare she, right? And it's that same superiority complex that sent them down this path of trying to destroy this woman for the sake of winning. And the prosecutor just did not want that to stand in the way of him being able to successfully prosecute the couple. If anyone needed to face some consequences and needed to be taken down a notch, it was these two. He had their DNA on the pipe and on the pills that were planted in the car. He knew they had a motive, that year-long vendetta against Kelly. He had their cell phone activity the day the discovery of the drugs was made. He's tried in one cases on much less evidence than that. He was done waiting around. It was time to file the charges and issue the warrants. In the meantime, Jill and Kent's attorneys had promised them that they would be informed in advance if charges were being filed and they would make this as comfortable for them as possible. They would set up a time to surrender and they could prepare to arrange their bail and they would be booked and in and out in no time. They wouldn't even have to be handcuffed. But the police didn't seem to mind or care about making this easy on the Easters. And as for Duff, he had no knowledge of any prearranged surrender. 
For him, it was going to be quite the opposite. In June of 2012, they got their arrest warrants in order for Jill and Kent, and he made sure that they were not on public record. And just after Kent dropped off the couple's children at the tennis lessons, he started to head towards work and was pulled over by a patrol car, asked to get out, and promptly placed into handcuffs in the middle of a busy Irvine intersection. He was driven over to the county jail in Santa Ana, and while he was standing outside in the booking area, he saw Jill. She had been placed under arrest at home. And no sooner had their booking photos been taken did those pictures get splashed all across the news. In the broad spectrum of true crime tales out there, this one seems particularly petty, doesn't it? There's just something about this story that you can't help but look to see what happens next. The fact that this couple represents what many people think of Orange County, like the kinds of stuff you see on Real Housewives, this plot to frame the PTA mom by this power couple, just had people fuming. It was wicked and malicious over something so insignificant. And it would cost the couple dearly. Jill wasn't practicing law at the time, but Kent was very much so. He was raking in $400,000 a year as a top litigator at his firm, and he was told to pack up his office and escorted off the premises. His career was over. All those years in law school, all for naught. So the prosecutor managed to file felony charges against the couple, and he wasn't really entertaining the idea of allowing them to plea bargain for some misdemeanors. That would mean that they could avoid being disbarred. Despite the fact that us listening to the story think that the mastermind behind all of this was Jill, it was her husband that they had the strongest evidence against. Both of their DNA was found on the drugs in Kelly's car, but he was the one seen on surveillance going into that hotel lobby to make that incriminating phone call against her. And it was his phone that was pinging towers near Kelly's home in those early morning hours the same day that the drugs were discovered. The Easters, however, being attorneys themselves, have some pretty creative legal maneuvers of their own. For one, Jill filed a declaration with the court shouldering the blame for the planting of the drugs in Kelly's car. But this declaration was promptly sealed. This was not going to be considered a confession, and it can't be used against her in court but it potentially laid the groundwork for the couple to be tried separately, which the defense wanted to motion for. And this confession of sorts would be a strong basis legally for them to not be tried together. And that way, she could be called to the stand in Kent's trial and her confession could be used as a part of his defense. But if they were tried together, she could not be called to the stand to testify in his defense. It was a pretty slick move on their part. So the opposing sides argued the defense motion to try the Easter separately, a motion that the prosecutor was strongly against for a number of reasons. One is if the judge ruled to try Jill and Kent separately, they would have to move Jill's trial to go first. The jury would not be privy to the confession that she made, along with the minimal amount of evidence implicating her in the crime, not to mention the fact that she has one of the best attorneys in California representing her, and it's very likely the woman could be acquitted. 
And then when Kent's trial would come up, Jill could testify that it was she who planted the drugs without any worry since she's already been tried and acquitted and he could very well be acquitted too. And then the two of them would carry on with their lives as if nothing had happened. Well, it was all for naught. The judge denied the defense motion. The couple would be tried together. But Jill would end up not going to trial. As the prosecutor was getting ready for the Easter's day in court in the fall of 2013, he received a call from Jill's attorney. She would agree to plead guilty to one count of false imprisonment by fraud or deceit. She did not want to go through the embarrassment of a trial, and she would also still be able to testify on behalf of Kent, hoping to see him be able to keep his law license and continue to work. Joe was sentenced to four months in county jail, of which she would only serve two, and 100 hours of community service at the Costa Mesa soup kitchen, and she was disbarred. Kent's trial began in November of 2013 with quite a formidable defense team led by an attorney who had once been a top federal prosecutor in Orange County when once named the county's white-collar lawyer of the year. And they had two strategies. One was to downplay the severity of the incident in terms of the impact that it had on Kelly Peters. And two was to portray Kent as a husband bullied by his wife into doing the things that she wanted him to do and that she was a wife who harangued him into doing her bidding, she lied to him constantly, and he could not stand up to the woman. But Kelly's testimony was powerful. It was raw and emotional, and she resonated with the jurors. Kent really had no choice but to take the stand for himself and explain what he did. And he put it all on Joe, that she was fanatical about getting Kelly out of the PTA out of the school, and out of Irvine if she could. He painted himself as this unwitting puppet who no matter how much he worked, no matter how much he tried, nothing was ever enough for his wife. But he wasn't very likable on the stand. He seemed kind of cold and distant. And that could very easily come across as haughtiness. And to prove what he was saying... Kent's attorney presented an email that Jill had sent him back in March of 2010, a month after the incident with her son at Plaza Vista School. In it, she said that they needed to get serious, followed by a laundry list of things she wanted him to do. She wanted a background check on Kelly. She wanted her to be placed under arrest. She wanted to file a restraining order against her. She wanted to file lawsuits against her, the school, the district, the school board, and everyone else by the next day. And she closed out her email by saying, quote, Why are we letting this no one abuse our son and then trash our family? Followed by 68 exclamation points. And after months and months of trying to help his wife get rid of Kelly from the school, and they just weren't able to, he said that she accused him of being a failure and letting down their family. He testified that her anger towards Kelly only deepened the more time that passed and nothing was happening. And he said he tried to reason with her. He tried to get her to let this go, but he also said that he had no idea that she was planning on framing Kelly on drug possession charges. And as far as his phone pinging near Kelly's house in those early morning hours, he said that Jill left her phone at home to charge and took his. He was in bed recuperating from a recent surgery and she left her phone in the bedroom 
and had his phone with her. He thought that she was downstairs taking care of one of their children who had been under the weather. He had no idea she had left the home to plant the drugs. And later that same day, Jill had phoned him at work to tell him that she spotted Kelly driving crazy near the elementary school and she could see that she was popping pills while behind the wheel. She demanded that he call 911. He testified that he didn't want to, but he didn't want to face her wrath any more over this, so he did, giving a fake name of a neighbor and feigning an Indian accent, which wasn't very good. On cross-examination, Prosecutor Duff tended to go for a line in questioning in such a way that drips with sarcasm and facial expressions, showing a blend of astonishment and disbelief when listening to the answers to his questions. When it came to the switching out of phones the night the drugs were stashed in Kelly's car, he asked why would his wife, with all of the lurid affairs she's been having over the years, leave her phone with you, full access to see all of what she could be potentially up to. He simply said that he had no idea what was in there, that he would not have known to look there or not, but the prosecutor continued to mock Kent and his story that it was Jill lurking around Kelly's apartment with his phone instead of her own. But what everyone was really waiting for was the defense to call Jill to the stand. She was probably his best chance of getting acquitted on the charges and going back to his life of practicing law. His defense team had already portrayed her as the scoundrel who masterminded this entire debacle. She could corroborate his story, and she might come across well to the jurors, well enough to have some reasonable doubt about Kent's guilt. But the defense never called her. I guess they didn't think that they needed her to win their case. And when the case was finally sent to the jury, they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict. On the one count of false imprisonment by fraud or deceit, 11 voted to convict, and one juror sympathized with the defendant. So 10 months later, a new trial commenced, and there was nothing much different about it when it came to Kelly's testimony and then Kent's. And again, Jill's presence and testimony were very much anticipated, but by this time, she had already served her time in the county. And it seemed like the defense was ready to call her to testify on their behalf, but when they did, she came into court and claims to have gone deaf and needed not only a sign language interpreter, but also that everything was being said in court to be displayed on a screen in real time. The prosecutor saw this as another way to manipulate the court. He wasn't buying that she was deaf. He saw this as a way for her to give herself more time to think about the questions that she would be asked to make sure her answers were measured. But the judge said that she's going to have to make do with an interpreter only. The defense opted not to call her to the stand. The biggest hurdle for the prosecution was to try and explain the motive behind all of this. Remember, all of this over one word, slow. It's hard to believe a couple like the Easters would go to such lengths to destroy someone over something so minuscule, but it did. And the more time went on and that nothing was being done in terms of getting rid of Kelly from the school, the more this escalated for the Easters, particularly Jill. There was one thing that the prosecutor did do differently at the second trial, and that was to delve deeper into the cell phone tower locations. He pointed out to the second jury that there are three ways to figure the location of a cell phone. One is when it pings nearest the tower during a call. 
A second is when text messages are sent. And a third is when there are automatic data checks that monitor the device. And this was some information the detectives and prosecutors overlooked, as the significance of it wasn't apparent during initial investigation into the Easters through the first trial. But while they were getting ready for trial number two, the prosecutor went over the cell phone records meticulously and found something that could obliterate Kent's story that he was at home with Jill's phone and Jill was at Kelly's with his phone. It had already been found that Jill's phone was at home, but only for part of the night. From midnight until about 8 a.m., periodic data checks were pinging near Kelly's home. No calls or texts were being made between the Easters. And it's already been established that Kent's phone was near Kelly's home, too. So what does this mean? It means that they carried out the planting of the drugs together that evening while they had a babysitter keep an eye on the kids. One planted the drugs, the other kept watch. And the prosecutor didn't bring about this cell phone ping information until his closing arguments, so it was too late for the defense attorney to rebut the information. He tried to have the information thrown out outside the presence of the jury, but the judge would not. The defense team had access to the phone records for years by then. They could have figured this out for themselves. And it didn't take the jury long to decide that Kent Easter was guilty as charged. And not only that, the judge ordered Kent to be remanded immediately. He had been on bail this whole time. He did not expect to have to go into custody right away. He asked the judge for some time to make arrangements for his children as well as taking care of his personal affairs while he's in custody. So the judge gave him one day to figure it all out. That night, Kent and Jill mulled over some ideas on how to get out of this. Now that he's been convicted of this crime, he will never be able to practice law again. Her moneymaker was gone. According to court documents, Jill suggested that he commit suicide so she could collect the life insurance policy worth half a million dollars, but he shot that down quickly. He wasn't willing to do that. She then tried to talk him into escaping to Belize with their children, or maybe she would kill herself. He spent the evening shutting down his law practice for good while she sat by on her iPad googling how to kill yourself. Kent was sentenced in October of 2014. He had been locked up for more than a month by then, and he was looking at as much as three years in prison. And the judge made it clear that he would like nothing more than to see Kent and Jill, for that matter, be sentenced to the maximum allowed. But because the prisons are overcrowded, it was just not a possibility, stating, quote, In a perfect world, I would send you to a prison largely as a statement of disgust for what you and your wife did. And with that, the judge would end up sentencing Kent to 180 days in jail, along with 100 hours of community service and three years of probation. And then the legal battles began between Kent and Jill. He had filed for divorce just before his second trial began, and it was while he was in custody that she filed for custody of the children. She accused him of being unstable, irrational, angry, and alcoholic with unpredictable mood swings. She also accused him of threatening to take the children away from her unless she pleaded guilty to planting the drugs in Kelly's car. When he got out of jail, 
at the end of 2014, he shot back at her, claiming that she refused to let him see or talk to his children. He even claimed that she wasn't taking care of the cat properly. He accused her of pepper spraying him during a fight once, and he even went so far as to say that he needed to get a paternity test done on their daughter because of her rampant affairs. Eventually, though, the couple would agree to joint custody and the accusations against one another eventually stopped. So, dreamers, the lingering question. Why in the world would the Easters go to these extremes over something so seemingly trivial? Kelly's attorney was anxious for some answers and was hoping it would come out in the civil lawsuit against the couple. And he finally had his chance in December of 2015 when Kent came in for his deposition. But he remained defiant in the face of questions about the plan that he and his wife concocted in order to frame Kelly for drug possession. He claimed that he's testified to this already twice in court and that he really didn't have any more to say about it. Kelly's attorney pressed him, reminding him that he is entitled to an answer. But still, Kent said that he's answered twice in two criminal trials. Kelly's attorney was not having it. He needed answers and he would compel him to answer if he had to. He denied knowing who planted the drugs. When asked about what his wife knew or told him, he refused to answer, citing spousal confidentiality. Kent denied scheming with his wife in an attempt to frame Kelly, and he followed that up by stating that despite what Kelly's been through, he didn't think it should have made her as distraught as she's been, even going so far as to say that he's been going through worse than what Kelly's gone through but he never really budged any further in terms of owning up to his part in this harebrained scheme. In his arguments in the civil trial, Kent highlighted the ruins that his life had become. His law degree, useless. His high-paid legal team, gone. His family, in shambles. His finances, depleted. And it would be his hope that the civil jury would just see that as punishment enough. Some thought Kelly's case was a long shot because she really didn't suffer any physical harm, nor did she lose her volunteer job at the school. But her attorney had this feeling that the more evasive Kent had been in his testimony, the more the jury would turn against him. Kelly's attorney reminded the jury that the couple tried for an entire year to ruin her life and reputation, and when that failed, they devised this plot to plant drugs in her car to set her up for an arrest on possession charges. Kent would say that Kelly's struggles with the aftermath of all of this were overly dramatic and exaggerated, and just because something bad was done to a person doesn't mean that they get to hit the lottery jackpot. Vague as he was, Kent eventually took some responsibility for the planting of the drugs in Kelly's car, and he cast the blame onto his wife, testifying that it was she who did it. His wife, now going by the name Ava Everhart, did not testify at any of the previous trials, but Kent would call her to the stand for this one. And he went easy on her. He didn't seem to have any animosity towards her during their testimony. He talked to her about the nature of their relationship, how they met, how they've known each other since they were young. By this time, she was back living with her parents in Newport Beach. And despite the fact that her father was an astrophysicist and an inventor, she claims to have not come from a privileged childhood and that she put herself through law school. 
further pointing out that of everyone in that room that they were in during this testimony, that she was the person that made it through the best law school. She testified how her name and reputation were now in shambles, and she's been made to serve two months in jail, and she subsequently was disbarred and has basically lost everything. And she said that she is not the school terrorist that the media has made her out to be. She was asked by Kelly's attorney if she planted the drugs in Kelly's car in 2011, and she answered that she pleaded guilty to that, but when pressed if she actually did it, she said no. Kelly's attorney had no more to say about it and ended his questioning. Kent called himself to the stand. He told the jury that his life was ruined and he was a broken man. His UCLA law degree, useless, with the likelihood of ever practicing law again pretty much non-existent and he was now sharing an apartment with his mother and father. He occasionally gets work from some old colleagues, but is still the main source of income for his three children. Kelly's attorney was convinced that Kent was hiding money, noting that after he was arrested, he transferred his property in Irvine over to Jill's father. He told the jury to not be fooled by the fact that Kent comes into court wearing the same ugly sweater every day. He's trying to portray himself as broke, but don't buy it. He described what happened to Kelly as being the worst experience of her life. Their daughter, who was 10 at the time, was terrified, became withdrawn, and eventually had to change schools. And don't forget about the evasiveness of the Easters, the unwillingness to take responsibility, much less even show any regret or remorse, except for themselves. In the end, Kent said that he should not have tried to do those things to Kelly, but she had everyone's support the school, the police, everyone backed her up. In essence, she was no worse for the wear. He's broke, he's lost everything, and there's no point to any of this. But the jurors saw the point and awarded Kelly $5.7 million in damages. A few months later, Kent came back before the judge arguing that the amount was way too much and that he had no way of paying it and he made a few legal arguments about the judgment but the judge saw the award to be just fine. When it comes to two very high-powered, highly educated, highly sophisticated people who use that power to try to take out a PTA mom who volunteered her time at the elementary school, he just couldn't let them get away with that. And he also told Kent that he could reapply for his license to practice law after five years, so it's not completely over for him yet, and his ability to perhaps practice law sometime in the future is still possibly there. And the judge also told Kent that his entire 50 years working in law, he cannot for the life of him figure out why they did this. He just looked at Kent, puzzled, and the fact that he was mostly unwilling to take any more than a vague amount of responsibility for what they'd done. And he just asked the question one more time, who came up with this plan? Kent? Her usual had nothing to say. So as Kent filed for bankruptcy and continued to appeal the civil verdict, Kelly decided to go after the person who was given the Easter's home. It was sold and the money went into two separate trusts that were overseen by Jill's father. Kelly's attorney would argue that that money belongs to Kelly, and on top of that, they want damages against Jill's father as well because the transfer of the home to him was fraudulent. Whatever came of that lawsuit, I was not able to find much information about. 
Kent Easter today still waffles about his role in the plot against Kelly, but he would admit that it wasn't very well thought out, and he certainly hadn't expected nearly the entire Irvine Police Department to be on the case like they were. He looks back upon his marriage as having been some of the best times of his life as well as some of the worst. He's scraping by by doing freelance work and occasional writing. Jill appeared on the Dr. Phil show where he took her to task about everything that went on with Kelly. He asked her about her accusing Kelly of trying to kill her, and she said that she had been expecting the school to remove Kelly from her volunteer position, but they hadn't. She claimed to have proof that Kelly was stalking her and showing up in places where her and her son were located, and that she had directly made threats against her life and that Kelly was becoming unhinged. When Dr. Phil asked her specifically what the threats were, she said that she doesn't like to think about it and that too much time has passed to remember. Jill also accused Kelly of being abusive to her son and that Kelly would stop at nothing to silence her and her son. That was all in the restraining order that Jill had filed for, but it was tossed out by the judge having no basis. Jill also filed a lawsuit against Kelly, but nothing came of that either. She also filed a police report claiming Kelly had endangered her son's life the day that he was left outside by accident, but there was no follow-up investigation or anything further conducted beyond the initial filing. Kelly also appeared on the Dr. Phil show as well, and he asked her if she threatened Jill's life or stalked her or any of the sort, and she basically said that all of the things that Jill is accusing her of she had been doing to her. It was actually the other way around. She talked about the campaign Jill launched to try and remove her and have her thrown out of the PTA and the school, an accusation Jill also denied to Dr. Phil. Kelly said the principal asked her to leave the school grounds as she was standing out in front handing flyers accusing Kelly of being abusive towards the kids, but Jill denied ever being at the school that day. She denied making and passing out flyers against Kelly. And when it came to the planting of the drugs, Jill denied to Dr. Phil that she had anything to do with it. She doesn't know who did it. She never came up with the idea to do such a thing. And as for the DNA being found on the drugs and pills in Kelly's car, all she had to say about that was it was transfer DNA and that it doesn't mean that she touched those things. Dr. Phil pointed out that it's kind of a huge coincidence that her DNA would end up on these planted drugs. And it just so happens that she had an ongoing issue with Kelly over the course of the past year prior to the drugs having been found in her car and that she's pleaded guilty to the charges related to it. And all Jill said was, well, okay. Kelly's written a book about the ordeal. It's entitled, I'll Get You, Drugs, Lies, and the Terrorizing of a PTA Mom. Her husband was diagnosed with leukemia and wasn't working anymore. She had yet to receive any money from the Easters, and she wrote this book to help bring in some income for her family. Thank you so much for your patience in me getting this 57th episode of California Dreaming out there for you. This is probably the easiest story I've told since beginning this show, right? No death, no murder, no violence, none of the sort. Just some wacky power couple from Orange County that had to have things their way. Please join me on the discussion page on Facebook where we will post comments and questions about this case and other cases that we cover. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming also has created a Patreon. 
For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the bonus content and help support the continued production of this show. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current rosters of shows, and to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 41 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of California Dreaming. And until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, I'm Heather. And I'm Lacey. And we are the host of Curious AF Podcast. We love to travel, see, and do things around the world, and we want to tell you all about it. Each week, we will tell you about a different thing to do or a place to see. From historical sites. Haunted places. Marvelous castles. Fascinating museums. Enchanting art exhibits. Fabulous festivals. World-famous wonders, hidden gems, and so much more. Hold on. This is not accurate. What? Can we talk about all that stuff? Yeah, but the way we're saying it makes us sound so nice. Oh, no. That is misleading. Yeah, so we talk about all that nice stuff we mentioned, but with a healthy dose of humor and and unladylike behavior. We tell the tale, but with our own spin. We share our travel stories, which usually involve our shenanigans and our mishaps. So if you think you can handle us, come find Curious AF Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and let's talk travel. And shenanigans. And remember to be brave and be safe. And stay Curious AF. Hi, I'm Kevin. And I'm Kevin. I'm also a Seth. And this is the Dark, Dark Windows, Windows Podcast. So what do we talk about here, guys? Talk about uh, cryptozoology. We talk about serial killers. We talk about ghosts. Aliens sometimes. Some freaky, unexplained instances, occurrences. Some, some dark history. Really dark history. Really dark history. And sometimes some fun stuff, too. Yeah, we some, like to have fun here. Exactly. And if you want to find us... Go on to Facebook, look up Dark Windows Podcast, Instagram at Dark Windows Pod, Twitter at Dark Windows Pod, and we have a Gmail account of Dark Windows Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find us anywhere pretty much you can find a podcast. Hope you like the show. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.